I hear the train a coming, it's rolling around the bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps rolling on down to San Antonio. The song of the prison, the song of the lonely man locked behind the bars. A man finds himself in such a place because of acts committed against his fellow man or against his land. Anyway, it's a cold, lonely, Hard to live with place. This is a song of the prison. When I was just a baby, Johnny's album at Folsom Prison was incredibly powerful. He had a message, and his message was the truth about being alive in this world and all the things that we experience. He was acknowledging our common humanity. The Folsom Prison Show is really a distillation of my dad's life. It is a performance that brings it all together. There were periods of great clarity in my father's career, and 1968 at Folsom Prison was one of those times. He was being his real self. It was rustic, raw, and primitive art, the essence of him. The magic was in the simplicity of it. From a fancy dining car, they're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars. Johnny's music at the Folsom Prison was a combination of sin and salvation. That was the rule in country music. Saturday night, Sunday morning. Sunday morning was about repenting, repenting for the fun you had on Saturday night. This idea of redemption. But Johnny, that was an enormous part of his whole career. Where the road is dark and the seed is sown, where the gun is cocked. As the bullets cold Where the miles are marked In the blood and the gold I'll meet you further on Up the road Further on up the road Further on up the road Where the way is dark and the night is cold One sunny morning We'll rise, I know And I'll meet you farther on Up the road Up here. 
nice to sit out on the porch of our room and feel the clean, pure air blowing straight down from the north. It always takes me back to my childhood. Is that story about your mom hearing your bass voice when, you, when your voice broke? Uh, that story's true. My mother said, God has his hand on you. Don't ever forget the gift. That's the first time she called it lit. Singing, writing, my voice. That's the gift. Nineteen thirty-five, they advertised this farming development that they were going to have in northeast Arkansas. It was part of President Roosevelt's New Deal to give a farmer and his family 20 acres house in the barn, the mule. Christ's colony, they called it. My dad was one of those people who were chosen out of 600 or so that got those 20 acres. Six of us in a truck with all of our earthly possessions. And it was like we were bound for the promised land. Everybody in the family worked in the fields. We had a small farm plowed with mules, walked behind the mules with the plow and hoed the cotton, picked it in the fall. And that's how I grew up. I could listen to that radio when I came into the fields. It was a whole world of music out there for me. The Carter family, Jimmy Rogers, and all those Texas artists. And those songs will make you feel better. The radio became a place that he could escape to. That gal that made a wreck out of me. The thing that drew him the most to the music were the characters that the music would bring to his mind. His father actually was the guy that Jimmy Rogers was singing about. His father did ride in boxcars and jump trains, and now he's hearing about it on the radio and romanticizing it. His writing was very present, even at a young age. Cash was actually trying to emulate what he read in some of the folk songs, what he heard on the radio. He's a man who, through his childhood, had so many influences. Just as poets take in a huge amount of material, I think the same is true of Cash and the influences would have informed him of the song tradition. He's trying to understand himself. That's the force behind most art making. Who am I? Where did I come from? What am I doing here? My father always told me I was wasting my time listening to them old records on the radio. I said, but it sounds good. I like it. He said, it's going to keep you from making a living. He said, you'll never do any good so long as you've got that music on your mind. I remember just drinking when I was very small. 
terrible abuse my mother suffered, screaming fights that would wake me up early in the morning. It's strange that my dad never hit me a lick. On the other hand, he never hugged us. He never ever came close to even telling us he loved us. Never once. My big brother, Jack, he loved to hear me sing. He told me that I was supposed to do that with my life. Jack was my best friend and my big buddy, my protector, my mentor. I really admired him. It was May 12, 1944, on a Saturday morning. Jack and I would always go fishing together. I said, go fishing with me, and he said, no. I gotta work, we need the money. He had a job cutting oak trees. I just remember my mother telling him, you seem like you don't feel like you should go. And he said, I don't, I feel like something's gonna happen. And she said, please don't go. And I said, go fishing with me, let's go fishing. And he kept saying, I've got to go to work. And I went on down toward the fishing hole. Here comes my father in the car with a preacher. I knew something was really bad wrong. Daddy took a bloody brown sack. He pulled Jack's clothes out of that bag and showed me where the table saw had cut him from his ribs down all through his stomach. And that was the first time I ever saw my dad cry. And he said, come on into his room, let's say goodbye to him. My mother was right at the head of his bed. And Jack got calm. And he looked around and he said, I'm glad you're all here. And he closed his eyes and he said, it's a beautiful river. It's going two ways. He said, oh, mama, can't you see it? No, son, I can't see it. Well, can you hear the angels? And she said, no, I can't hear the angels. Tears came out of his eyes. He said, I wish you could. They're so beautiful. And what a beautiful place that I'm going. There are a lot of memories that I have uh, purged and discarded and promised to never bring them back up again times of hurt and pain. I'll never forget those songs for Jack's funeral. It gave me a lift, the spirit and the power that I felt. I've always felt that I'm supposed to sing those gospel songs. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome there was always a religious and spiritual bent to Johnny's presentation. That was the integral part of how he saw himself. 
If you look at the set list of Folsom Prison, the songs showed what he went through in his life. Folsom was connected to the most important things in his life, both loss and salvation. You always got the feeling that my dad was trying to get away from pain. He worked out his deepest problems on the stage with an audience. Folsom Prison album, to me, it's always had a redemptive quality in its narrative. The religious overtones, that's very much part of John's brother passing away. John decides to go toward the music and the light. At a young age, John accessed that pathway for inspiration and works of art. Music was spiritual to him. It was the place he turned in the darkest moments of his life. It came from songs they sang in church and the songs they sang in the field. I would start off in the morning singing hillbilly songs. By mid-afternoon, I was into gospel, and my brothers and sisters would be singing along with me. I sang those old gospel songs for my mother, and she said, is that you? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she came over and put her arms around me and said, I was going to leave the farm and do well in life. When you graduate from high school here, do it on your own. First, I hitchhiked to Pontiac, Michigan, and got a job making those 1951 Pontiacs. Got really sick of it, went back home and joined the Air Force. They sent me to Brooks Air Force Base, Texas, to study Russian code. I met my first wife while I was in Texas. I met her at the skating rink in San Antonio before I shipped out. I only had two or three dates with her. We had talked about marriage. We practically set the wedding date. I knew that, that when I came home that I wanted to marry her and I wanted to settle down and, and raise a family. And I wanted to sing, and I wanted to make records. I wanted to do the best of both. A week after I enlisted, the Korean War broke out. So I was in the military during the Korean War, but they sent me to Germany. He wound up in Germany as a radio interceptor because he can listen, he can hear things. He can hear the cadence and the rhythm of the communications as they're going back and forth. He understands how words can fit together and how lines and rhythms can fit together. He developed perfect timing. In the prime of my life, when I was 19, 20, 21 years old, I was overseas in a closed-in society there. I didn't make a phone call. I didn't get to come home for three years. I went to see a movie called Inside the Walls of Folsom Prison. That movie just really got to me. I thought of that movie half of the night. And then I got up and started writing. Well, I could relate my life in the Air Force to the lives of those prisoners. 
Folsom Prison Blues. I wrote it as if I were in Folsom Prison. And I dreamed up the crime I committed to shoot a man, just to watch him die. And you could go to jail for that, you know. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. I'm speaking from the criminal's mouth. As it happens, there are a lot of people who like to hear such lurid tales told musically. They tried to get me to stay in the Air Force, and I said, no, I'm going out and sing on the radio. When I came back from the Air Force, I knew I never would be again happy just working in the dirt. I knew I wanted to get a job and support a new wife and hopefully a new family. We got married right away. Got a, a very cheap car, an old apartment in a rundown part of Memphis. Then I started trying to get on the radio. I went down to see my brother. He was a mechanic. He'd been telling me about these two guys that like to play music. He introduced me to Marshall Grant and Luther Perkins in 1955. Luther played the guitar. Marshall played the bass. Luther was, was like he never met a stranger. Uh, Marshall was a little more reserved, but we got along beautifully. Sit on the porch and pick music until the yard was full of neighbors. We had some good times together. I have a great deal of fondness when I think back on those days. Elvis Presley was tearing up the airwaves. My new wife and I, we went out to see him at one of his first public appearance that was on the flatbed of a truck at a Cat's drugstore opening. He was on Sun Records. Sam Phillips was a man of vision with Sun Records. And the first time I talked to Sam, I told him I'm a gospel singer. And he said he couldn't record gospel. The market wasn't big enough. So then I wound up on the steps waiting for him one morning. When I went in, I sang uh, Carter Family Songs, Jimmy Rogers. But then he kept directing me back to my own repertoire. I didn't really think it was any good, but I had told him about Hey Porter. Come back tomorrow and bring those guys you've been making the music with, and we'll put it down. Hey Porter, hey Porter, would you tell me the time? How much longer will it be till we cross that Mason-Dixon line? At daylight, would you tell that engineer to slow it down? Or better still, just stop the train, because I want to look around. Our inability had more to do with our success than our ability did. First eight bars that we ever played together, that Johnny Cash sound was right there. And ask everybody that ain't asleep to stand right up and yell. I didn't take Johnny Cash and try to refashion his soul. We just took that old And I'm gonna tell you something. Hey, that was distinctive. That was different. Did everything coming out the same? The arrangements were so predictable, and I didn't want to sound like anybody else. I put paper in the strings of my guitar to get that sound, 
and the beat that was so bare and sparse it sounded like a train with two wheels gone. Hey, Porter, hey, Porter, please open up the door. When they stop the train, I'm gonna get off first, cause I can't wait no more. Tell an engineer, I said thanks a lot, and I didn't mind the fare. I'm gonna set my feet on southern soil and breathe that southern air. came up through Sun Records at a very pivotal time in the history of American music. One of the big differences between Johnny and most of the other artists on Sun is Johnny was a writer. Johnny was a poet, and Johnny wrote his own material. The songwriting of Johnny Cash and his use of language is the thing that's most often overlooked about him. It's the thing that really sets him apart from people like Elvis who were doing more traditional material. That's the thing that Sam Phillips picks up on. There was the way that that came through the airwaves. The fewer instruments, the better. The emptiness of it really had a very haunting quality. When you limit the number of instruments where you can hear the song, his voice was a universe of its own as far as tone and sound. The song and the singer become inseparable. And that first year, when I really started on the road with the record out, it was a nice time, it was a pleasant time. Went on tour with Elvis, and good things started happening. Well, a train driver pulled up the toll gate, and a man hollered and asked him what all he had on board, and he said, I got livestock, I got livestock. I got cows, I got pigs, I got sheep, I got mules, I got all my stuff. It was time for something with a new feeling and a new spirit and a new mood to take over, and that's what happened in Memphis. We knew our limitations. We never tried to do, quote, crossover records. As it so happened, I was a big crossover hit from country to pop. It felt really good to know that I had an audience out there and that I might be able to record something that they want to hear. I'd arrived. I was kind of stunned when I would see the record sales. I thought at first it was all hype, but in every record I released, I knew I was going to sell a quarter of a million. Down the Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road. Rock Island line, it's a road to ride. Rock Island line, it's a mighty good road. Well, if you ride, you got to ride it like you find it. Get to take it up the station for the Rock Island line. It's been a really joyful period of growth artistically with me. We were really having fun with our music, and, and every day was a gold mine. Down a rock out on line, it's a mighty good road. Rock out on line, it's a road to ride. Rock out on line, it's a mighty good road. Well, if you ride, you got to ride it like you find it. You can take it up to station for the rock out on line. I began to realize that there was going to be some friction, some tension and stress from and me doing my music and doing what I wanted to do and stay happily married to her, too. There was always a battle going on at my house, and it was really a hopeless fight because I was not going to, to give up what I was doing out there. 
All the pieces were thrown up in the air. My mother did not know how to navigate it. She had tremendous fear, confusion, grief, this enormous sense of loss. My mother was supportive, and then it became really complicated for her because she saw him going away from her, and she became more desperate to hold him at home. In the 1950s, you would get in a car with the base strapped to the roof, you'd drive 200 miles, do two or three shows, get back in the car, drive again, do an afternoon show, an evening show, do it again over and over and over, no break. And then one day, another musician said to Dad, take this, it'll help you stay awake, and take this, it'll help you fall asleep when the day's over. And that was it amphetamines and barbiturates, and doctors would prescribe it to them. It was a different time. In the post-war period in America, it's a new commercial culture based around feeling better a new time in how people thought about medicine and drugs. Can have control not just over their physical experience, but how they feel. It happens too fast to be regulated with any kind of certainty. And that's the world of medicine and drugs that Johnny Cash enters into. In the late 50s and early 60s, when there was very little really known about amphetamines, for a long time, I always got a nice prescription. The doctor gave me this, uh, so they got to be good. Most doctors didn't balk about giving someone like me who was traveling a lot and had late hours to keep something to help keep him awake to, to drive all night, to help me with the, the miles. I'd always take amphetamines to give, energize me for concerts. Not always, but usually always. The amphetamines really supercharged me. Johnny Cash! Now I met her accidentally in St. Paul, Minnesota. And it tore me up every time I heard her drawl, southern drawl. Then I heard my dream went back downstream to Borton and Davenport. And I followed you, Big River, when you told. Those songs, some folks might refer to it as being simplistic. It was anything but that. It was succinct. The words were most important to Johnny. Not a word out of place. Not a word too many. Not a word too few. Just enough. Now won't you bat it down by Baton Rouge, River Queen, roll it on. Take that woman on down to New Orleans, New Orleans. Go on, I've had enough. Dump my blues down in the gulf. She loves you, Big River, more than me. When he was approached by Don Law, 
of Columbia Records. He asked if he were to join Columbia, would he be permitted to make gospel? He wanted to make concept albums. Law assured him that he would be able to do that. That really sealed the deal. When I left Sun Records, it was a traumatic thing with leaving Sam Phillips, who had been so good to me and had uh, done so much for me. But I knew with a major record company that I could reach more people in doing what I wanted to do as an artist. At about that time, in 58, I moved to California. I was taking amphetamines, and uh, I was living up and going 23 hours a day, running on reserve all the time. Life is a matter of choices when it came to either staying home with my family or going on the road and, and working in the music business. I felt like I was born to perform, born to sing, born to write and record. They took me away from my family. My kids suffered, and Vivian suffered. The music business was taking me away from her. I wasn't there for the graduations and the uh, school plays. I wasn't there to see them dressed up for the proms. Writing and singing all night long. And would be there wide awake and red eye in the morning when she got up. But my pill taking scared Vivian. She saw it as something that was going to kill me. She literally begged me, please get off these pills. They're going to destroy us both. I let it roll off. that his desires are bigger than he is. He can't control his drug use. He can't control his romantic inclinations. It's somehow autobiographical, but Ring of Fire is a song he didn't write. June Carter did. June joined the show in 62, and when she joined our show, it was a beautiful thing for me. Although I had a feeling at the time it was deeper than just an employer-employee kind of relationship, I liked her a little too much from the very beginning. Everybody really respected you. She had a great reputation 
among her peers in the music business. for two years in New York. And I went to school to Sandy Meisner. I wanted so to be an actress for a long time. I did comedy. I did a lot of things. I was very liberated. I had so much ambition. Johnny Cash lets me be a part of everything he does. We write together, we sing together. I couldn't ever forget looking at him, but I was scared. He was married and I was married to somebody else. June Carter came from a very famous family, first family of country music, the Carter family. The Carter family came from Appalachia, poor, outside of society, writing and collecting songs that were about everyday life. It was essentially news to people who were growing up in the rural areas. John certainly had a sense of history. Of course, he would have been drawn to the Carter family. They're sort of the royal family of American old-time country and folk music. In 1962, when Maybell, Helen, and Anita, and June started working my show, it was a great feeling out there on stage to have that support, to share the music with. I have never been more comfortable on stage than when I was singing with them. We had that chemistry going, and I used them on a lot of sessions. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there 
When they nailed him to the cross still searching as an artist. He was retreating into the desert, into the national parks, exploring the myths of the West that he had in his mind, trying to understand the stories that were so important to him about a nation growing older, about the frontier. He is molding who he becomes to the popular audience. The Rambler, the Brakeman, the Patriot, the Frontiersman, the Cowboy, the Indian. And that desire to make a bigger statement, have a theme to his career, a philosophy behind what he was doing, very much set him apart from other artists. He's defining America. When he tells a story in a song, you believe that story. It's his ability to inhabit these songs. It's real. I did a lot of music in the 60s that, in the spirit of it all, I was really 100% there. I probably recorded more in that decade than any. And a lot of things that I'm extremely proud of. I wanted to do a concept album called Ride the Strain. First big concept album in country music. I did another album called Blood, Sweat, and Tears that I really felt good about. When I was doing the True West album, I would wear authentic Western clothes. A lot of times I would even strap on my gun. It was loaded with blanks. And to really get into the flavor of the West in my emotions and spirit. Well, I felt like I was accomplishing something real. At that time, I was doing one concept album after another, and one of them happened to be Ballads of the American Indians. A hundred years have come and gone. It's good to point out the mistakes that we've made, what we did to these minorities the anti-Semitism that's still going on in this country, anti-black, anti-immigrants, anti-women, and the near genocide of the aboriginals of America. His capacity to represent the underdog and engage with the other goes partly to the ballad tradition but it falls in with the Christian world picture too. He was ahead of his time. 
the tragedy of Native America and its obliteration by white people is not particularly welcome in this country. Nobody wants to hear about it. American audiences were totally unfamiliar with Native American anything. Indigenous resistance goes back 500 years. Every now and then, somebody else will come along and champion the things that indigenous people are longing for and protesting for. I liked the gesture, having at least tried with bitter tears. But on the Seneca Reservation, there is much sadness now. Washington's treaty has been broken, and there is no hope, no how. All across the Allegheny River, they're throwing up a dam. It will flood the Indian country, a proud day for Uncle Sam. But it broke that ancient treaty with a politician's grin. It will drown the Indian graveyards. Corn planter, can you swim? Earth is mother to the Seneca, so they're trampling sacred ground Change the mint green earth to black mud flats as honor hobbles down as long. He was doing stuff that nobody cared to do it or were afraid to do it. He was getting real resistance from radio. The radio stations didn't want to play it because it demands to be looked at further. It was a very hard play around the country. John realized that at some point and took out a full-paged ad in Billboard magazine and chastised the disc jockeys and called them gutless. It was quite progressive. Johnny had an open musical mind. He was very close to a folk musician, as certainly as close as he was as to a country musician, without being necessarily any of those things. Time of the folk song revival came along. I had all this repertoire in my head already, so I was right in there with those folk singers. I knew what they were all about. Folk music is the roots of country music, the gut of country music. Listen to Bob Dylan. Then I wrote him this letter, told him that I'd been listening to his record and that, uh, that I was a real fan of his. And I got a reply immediately. He had been following me since the days of I Walked the Line. So I met him at the Newport Folk Festival. I remember being in my hotel room and, and Bob Dylan came in and we were like kids so happy to meet each other that uh, we jumped up down on the bed. Got a special request from a friend of ours to do a song tonight, and I'm very honored. I ain't never been so honored in my life. Our good friend Bob Dylan would like to do one of his songs, and is there any water here? Never. Thank you. No, I don't drink anymore. I don't drink any less, but I don't drink anymore. Well, it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, gal If you don't know by now It ain't no use to sit and wonder why, gal I can't hear you anyhow When your rooster's a-crowing At the break of dawn Look out your window 
and I'll be gone. Don't you know you are the reason why I'm traveling on? Well, don't think twice, it's all right. I was a bag of bones. I looked like walking dead, and I knew it. There was a violent side to that person. Tear things up, break things just for the sake of breaking them. When I went to the Grand Ole Opry, I don't remember much about that night. I tried to take the mic off the mic stand. It didn't come off quick enough, so I just threw the mic stand all around. I hit a couple of lights and knocked them out. I liked the way they shattered. Took the mic stand and I dragged it all the way along the edge of the stage. Broke them all. June and I were singing and she just backed up and just kind of wilted. They told me they couldn't use me anymore. In the 60s, I was busted seven times in various jails in the country. The situation at home in California was so deteriorated by that time that uh, uh, I had made my last trip to California to see my girls. She wouldn't let me see them anymore. And the divorce was final in late uh, 67. Every time I'd get high, I'd head for Chattanooga. Now, I'd been up two or three days and nights. I was drinking a case of beer a day and take it up to 100 pills, half amphetamines and half barbiturates. Keep me going up and down, keep the cycle going. There's a cave near Chattanooga, Tennessee that I, I like to explore. I was sitting in the mouth of that cave crying. June found out where I was, and I found out she was coming, so I started walking into that cave. And I started, I'd walk as far as I could go and then lay down. And my flashlight completely burned out and it was black. I lay down flat on my back, said my goodbye prayers. I felt a presence. I saw a little fleck of light way off in the distance and it started crawling and clawing toward that entrance. When I woke, June was there. She knew it was really, really bad this time. She said, you're almost dead, aren't you? And I said, I want to live. I came off the pills in 67. It was kind of a scatterbrain period for me. My career was going over. I didn't have a lot of support from the record company. You know, it affects everything in your life when you're on mood altering drugs. Everything in your life is, uh, is not right. But through the pain, 
of humility comes compassion and care and concern for myself and for my fellow man. I knew if I could ever get a live recording out of prison, it was going to be a great album. We managed to do it in 1968 at Folsom Prison. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. He felt that he had something in common with those men he could have just as easily been in there himself. He was saying, I see you, I know you. The record company thought it was a terrible idea, but for John, a true artist is gonna follow his vision, no matter what. that he can change his life. I screwed up and I fought back and here I am. People love that. It's an incredible American story. Most successful artists, there's always a little bit of the messianic complex stuck in here. It might be just a result of being incredibly fortunate and put in a position of some power, an element of survivor's guilt. Not only were you saved, but you can save others, you know. The more success that he gained, the more he solidified his reputation as an activist artist. Every one of us finds himself at some point in his life in a spot where he has to reach out for help. He speaks out against the struggles that were happening in the world. He worked for prison reform. People have got to become conscious of the problems in the prison. He spoke out against war. Servicemen and prisoners have a lot in common. I think they feel a lot of the same things. The loneliness, isolation. It's a validation of John Cash. And then June Carter sees the good in him. 
She brought happiness to him because she was a jolly person and Johnny needed Jim in every way. He loved Jim for who she was. Early 1968 was when my parents' love really flourished. I'm sure it had been there for a while, but that was when it could be completely in the public's face. In 1969, I get my own ABC television show, and I was doing it without any kind of mood-altering drugs. I couldn't have done it if I had been on mood-altering drugs. I was straight and sober for all of those shows. My show became a, a machine that just kept on running, and uh, the Carter family, the Statter brothers, and uh, Carl Perkins, and, and the Tennessee Three, and myself, they're wonderful people. I love that whole family. I was uh, doing what I love to do. If you go where the snowflakes fall, when the rivers freeze, then please see for me. Television has always been problematic. Getting real music to happen on TV is very hard. Television production has extinguished many a beautiful moment. It's always been terrible. But Johnny Cash was one of the first ones to get real music to be played live on TV. If you go when the snow to bring various genres of music, various kinds of artists with different backgrounds together onto the same stage was quite daring. Even though everyone had their different style and people were putting different labels on them, there were no labels when it came to John. What was unique about Johnny's show was that people were actually there, actually singing. Johnny's show was all real, all the time. The more I was on TV and the more I performed with black people or introduced black people, 
and more I'd hear from the clan. It was Charlie Pride that I hugged on my television show. The letter came the next week from the clan, written in blood. It would be dangerous to become complacent and think the attitudes changed. Not too many years before this, they had segregated audiences in Nashville. African Americans had to sit in the balcony and the whites down below. He had to expurgate his own native racism growing up in Arkansas in the 30s and 40s. I fell got a little baby boy, John Carter Cash, and uh, he's a perfect little baby, and I just wanted to say thank you to all you wonderful people all around the world. Where are you going, my little one, little one, little t-shirts and old clothes? Now, when I was born, Dad was at a prime, physically, emotionally, connected with family. Something that, sadly, my sisters had not experienced during their early life. I think my father also was aware of his shortcomings and his own selfish nature. The potential for falling short, or my own interior darknesses taking control, and the supposed bounty of self being greater than giving. But he also learned, just as importantly, that there was forgiveness. My dad caused so much chaos in my family and so much pain for my mother and so much pain for him. He was absolutely tortured. He wanted to redeem himself. And that goes back to Jack. And that's where it started. He always had this idea that part of Jack's death was why he became who he was. He always felt that Jack was a sacrificial lamb in some ways. It was a deep wound and fueled his restlessness and fueled much of his writing and music. On top of that, his dad actually saying to him, it's your fault, and the guilt that he carried his whole life because of that. I still dream about my brother Jack. Mm -hmm. Down through the years, when I dream about him, 
he would age with me. And he's like, he's always there, and I've got a problem, kind of looking at me and smiling, as if to say, I know you, you know? I know what you really got in your mind. He's been like a, a guiding light. He was called to be a minister. Even after his death, for years, he's been a minister to me. His influence has been powerful all my life. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that we might all come together and enjoy ourselves. When Jack died, my father was converted teaching in the church, even preached a sermon. We know that we have more blessings given to us than we deserve here on this earth. I've had trouble with trying to justify his conversion and especially his atonement. What happened to him that made him fit for the kingdom of God? I was thinking about justifying my own redemption and atonement through looking at him. The most beautiful aspect of my father's spirituality perhaps was his capacity for forgiveness. I never once heard my father say anything disrespectful to my grandfather. If there was an anger that remained, it was not evident. I spent a lot of time with Johnny Cash, and whatever he manifested in his artwork came from the human and the divine. It's hit and miss, hit and miss, hit and miss, hit and miss. Searching for that connection, that definitive connection. Lord, is it I, is it I? And Jesus said, have a little bread, Simon. Pass the wine to James, my brother. Go ahead and eat, friend. And love one another. Have a good time, boys. I make no apologies for it. And I don't cram anything down the people's throats, but I have to tell it like it is. I sing it like it is. I started doing crusades with Billy Graham. This is an important meeting for all of us here today because our whole world seems to be in trouble. We may be standing on the verge of either the Third World War or Armageddon itself. Or now drink the cup and sales dropped to rock bottom when I made a public profession of faith, you know. I knew it would, and it did. And uh, then the record company started saying, man, we'd rather see you in prison than a church. And I said, you know, I kept saying, well, let's do a little both. Let me be what I have.
He didn't have a lot of hits during that time, but he was spending a lot of time with the family. John Carter was a young boy, and he was really taking the time to be a father, taking him to school, picking him up, and it was a real inspiration to see that as he never got to be much of a father to the girls because he was gone all the time. He was connected with his girls, Roseanne, Cindy, Kathy, and Tara. And he showed absolutely no less love and consideration to my sisters Rosie and Carlene, my mother's daughters. all the time for all you do for us. And this is just like a big thank you from all of us. Oh, I never got over those blue eyes. I see them may not have had any big hits through the 1970s, but he identified what he stood for and who he was and where he was headed. And then he lived in the joy of his life. simple life. We try to keep uh, our little family group as close together as we can. We don't do anything too elaborate. We're just country people. Johnny Cash had a problem with drugs, but a stupid little old thing like a pill. And it caused us an awful lot of heartbreak and a lot of heartache. He quit all that junk. And everything's all right now. I've been completely, totally happy since I've been married to Johnny Cash. During the show, I stopped after a song. I said, I learned a song here last night that was written by one of you. A man on the front row, he was in there for life. A man named Glenn Shirley, who wrote a song called Greystone Chapel. Inside the walls of a prison, my body may be, but my Lord has set my soul free. There's a Greystone Chapel here at Folsom. The first time 
that he ever shook Glenn Shirley's hand he connected with the goodness that was there the hope that was in the man despite the darknesses that were very real I had such a deep feeling for these guys in prison felt sorry for them because they were human beings and they finally wound up getting Glenn Shirley out of prison we went to the governor, arranged for him to parole Glenn. We wanted to help Glenn on the outside. But the door to the house of God is never locked. Inside the walls of a prison, my body may be, but my Lord has set my soul free. Glenn eventually joined the show, but he had a very tough time adjusting. Ten years ago, on a cold, dark night, someone was killed neath the town hall light. There were few at the scene, but they all agreed that the slayer who ran looked a lot like me stories he would tell about being back in prison were a little scary and you knew that's where he wanted to be it was too tough to make a living in the music business that freedom that overwhelming freedom weighed on him he had a bad drug addiction in prison and after a period of time, he got back on drugs. Said, son, what is your the friendship dissolved. You were he felt like he had failed a lot of people. And he saw that spiral going even further. And he was going to stop that. And I think that's why he took his life. That was crushing. The burden of thinking that you are responsible for turning people's lives around. He realized he couldn't do it, and then he just stopped all of it. He certainly helped people for the rest of his life, but this idea that he could save some people, that went away. She walks these hills in a long black veil. Johnny did see this lost soul he was going to save in Glenn Shirley. But he was trying to save himself, too. In the late 1970s, my father went back into addiction. People tend to think that when Johnny Cash was the craziest was in the 1960s. I'm not so sure it wasn't in the early 1980s. My parents' relationship went through some extreme difficulties because of my father's drug addiction. And I was around a lot of their arguments at that time. They nearly split up. There's a certain understanding about my parents' love affair. Some people seem to think that it was happily ever after once they married. It was not. The story of Johnny and June, well, it's not that simple. People want their myths. It wasn't just that one day he fell in love with June and left. That's not what happened. Johnny and June deeply loved each other, but it also became complicated. 
I took a lot of pain medication during that time. It got to the point where I was taking sleeping pills in the daytime as well to calm my nerves and then doubling up at night to go to sleep. I had been hallucinating every day from the morphine. I was weak, I was wasted. In comes my mother, my daughter Roseanne, June, John Carter, Cindy, Tara, and every one of them had written something, had uh, made them realize that I was in really serious trouble and they cared for me and they were all individually and collectively asking me to get myself some help. That whole period of the 80s, Johnny Cash needed all the help he could get at that particular time making records. And some of them were overproduced. I didn't really take it all that seriously. After a long period of apathy there, I just, uh, I didn't really care what the record company wanted. I made the fatal, terrible mistake of burlesquing myself. I was catching myself trying to sing like Johnny Cash. Doing the concerts, going out, same thing over and over again. You know, and that's the worst thing an artist can do, is burlesque himself. You know, he thought, regardless of what he did, nobody was going to care for maybe 20 years. And he was feeling like he was not going to make music anymore. Dark times. I remember going to a very sparsely attended show of John's. That place was nearly empty. The audience isn't what it used to be. You know, this is Johnny Cash. This place should be packed. During the 80s and early 90s, when I got there, he was just treading water. He was playing performing arts centers. He'd been pretty much cast aside by Columbia and everybody else. He was pretty disheartened by all that. To be demoted back to country fairs and little carnivals, there was a lot of shows to keep the machine rolling. He called me and he said, can you believe that the record company is not trying to do anything with these songs? It broke my heart. We talked to many different labels about their interests, and everybody was coming back with, well, We'll do one album with an option to maybe do another one. I said, no, that doesn't work. So we just didn't do any recording. But I must go alone Till the Lord comes and calls Calls me away And the morning so bright and the lamb is the light, and the night, night is as black as the sea. Oh, yes. There'll be peace in the valley for me someday. Peace in the valley for me, dear Lord, I pray. There'll be no sadness, no sorrow. No trouble I see There'll be peace in the valley for me Over time you remove all the challenges, the adventure, and it may be more comfortable, but artists require the challenge. When I stopped making records, it was like, uh, where did all of the magic go? 
I ran up against so many walls, didn't care that much about making new music. I was really just playing it, not really serious about it. Here's a man who's lived this remarkable creative life. He's hitting bottom. All around him are the artifacts from decades of success. He throws these things into the lake behind the house. To move ahead, he has to let it all go. Things that you don't want anymore, you submerge them under the water. Baptism, all of the shadows and the darkness washed away. It's the promise of redemption, the promise of life. In 92, I was playing a show in California. Lou Robin came to my dressing room and said, Rick Rubin would like to meet me. He said, I'd like to sign you up, man, and record you. I said, what are you going to do with me that nobody else has been able to do? She said, I would like you to sit in my living room with a guitar and two microphones and just sing to your heart's content everything you ever wanted to record. sounded like a dream come true for me. I went through my list of 200 or more songs and started singing them one after another. So we put together the album with just a guitar and myself. Down a dangerous road I have come to where I'm standing With my head bowed low and my hat clutched in my hand I'm such a foolish man God ain't known no greater sinner I have come in search of Jesus Hoping he might understand The first album was recorded in my living room. They were just demos. They were, they were not necessarily what the album was going to be. Then we went into the studio with different bands and of all the different options, the solo recordings were the most interesting. If I give my soul, will he put new boots on my feet? If I bow my head and ask God for his forgiveness, will he breathe new life within me and bring her back to me? When our first album came out and people really responded to it and a whole new group of young people started coming to see him and he got to feel that, from then on he was very excited about the work. The arc of the life falls into a recognizable arc. Success, a dip, that is for many people the end of the story. That's how most artists function. Some of them have a new lease of life. Redemption. The reaction was like the 50s all over again. 
It was like that kind of excitement. And the reaction from the critics and the fans was beautiful. The young people seem to appreciate my old stuff. If that railroad train was mine Bet I'd move it on a little farther down the line Far from Folsom Prison That's where I want to stay And I'd let that lonesome whistle Blow my blues away liking the acoustic album, the most obvious thing to do would be to make another acoustic album. So my thought was we can't make an acoustic album. We had a backing band that Rick handpicked that was unbelievable. Tom Petty, Mike Campbell, Ben Montench, Howie Epstein, Mick Fleetwood, Lindsey Buckingham, Carl Perkins. There was a lot of love there and trust. And because of that, he could perform to his friends and be very honest about the emotions in the lyrics. Rick Rubin was very smart in that he realized that Johnny was all about his voice, you know. <laughs> that incredible voice could transform almost any piece of music and it would move you in some way or another. Johnny just had that kind of vocal individuality. The voice was a masterwork. At that point, his voice was definitely changed. He was aging and uh, it had a different quality to it. It had more of an older statesman kind of sound, a man in the midst of reflection. Man and June struggle to uh, survive and to stay alive and be together. It's a fabulous love story. She was uh, the greatest woman I've ever known. I wish the whole world could know what a great woman she is. She lifted me up when I was uh, weak, when I would fall. She encouraged me when I was discouraged. She loved me when I felt like that nobody did anymore. But the main thing is she loves me, and I know that. When June passed away, everyone was surprised because they always felt that John would go first. She left instructions for him that she wanted John to finish his music and continue on. After my mother had passed away, he was bound to a wheelchair. When you got close to that wheelchair, you felt his struggle, all that was lost, all of that pain that had gripped him, 
And in that point of greatest darkness, just as he did when he was a boy, he followed the light. He followed the music. When he was too ill to tour, there was a question of how long he would survive, because that was his reason to be alive. Through expanding our recording schedule, his new purpose became recording, and he recorded every day from that point forward. That was his purpose in life. Early one morning, with time to kill, I see the gallows up on the hill, and out in the distance, a trick of the brain. I see a lone rider crossing the plain, and he comes to fetch me to see what they done, and we'll ride together till kingdom come. I pray for God's mercy, cause soon I'll be dead. I hung my head, I hung my head, I hung my head, I hung my head. There's an energy that comes from music, a spirituality that transcends what the words are saying. There are things about it that can reach you in a way that nothing else can. The spirituality just exists in the world. Musicians can tap into it. I think it's just there. What is man if he doesn't have a spirit? And what is man's spirit if it cannot connect with the master of life. I've survived a lot. It is the human spirit, more than the godly spirit, that's fighting for survival. It's all fleeting, as fame is fleeting. Where do we go when we die? Well, we all hope to go to heaven. I know I have sinned, but Lord, I'm suffering. Jesus. Oh, Jesus, if you hear my last breath. Hmm, I was just wondering what your gratitude list is. Gratitude list? Oh, man, that's a long list. I'm thankful for the first ray of the sunshine I see in the morning. I'm thankful for the birds that I feel like are singing just for me. I'm thankful for my family, for daughters that love me and a son that loves me. I'm thankful for a soulmate. I'm thankful that God has inspired me to write. I'm thankful for the gift. 
Jesus. Jesus, all my troubles, all my pain will leave me once again. smiling through just like you always do till the blue skies 
Drive the dark clouds far away And would you please say hello To all the folks that I know And tell them I won't be long They'll be happy to know That as you saw me go I was singing this song 